I do want to invite you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this evening, and Romans chapter 1. So 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans chapter 1. Uh, before we get into the Word, of course, I just want to remind all the men that tomorrow night at 6.30 we have our uh, quarterly men's fellowship dinner. And so come on out for, for that. We're going to have fajitas and stuff. And so come on out. It's going to be a wonderful time uh, in uh, fellowship with one another. So uh, tomorrow night at 6.30, I hope to see all of you there. Uh, we are continuing our series tonight in uh, looking at worship. And we've been walking through the Bible, stopping off at various points and places to, to learn what we can about worship, hopefully to enrich our worship of God, that our worship of Him would be holy and righteous and pure and acceptable and received by Him. And tonight we're going to continue that series. And last week we looked at what Jesus had to teach about worship. And uh, now we're getting towards the end as we're going to begin looking at what some of the apostles taught about worship. Tonight we're going to look specifically at the Apostle Paul and what he taught about worship. I was tempted to go back to the, the theme verse from Romans chapter 12, 1, which says to present your bodies to the Lord, all of your life to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Uh, but as there is much in there that we could examine, but I did feel uh, led to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and specifically what he teaches about idolatry here in this passage. And so you'll be reminded that Paul is not writing to pagans here in Corinthians. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians. Nevertheless, he warns them here about practicing idolatry. And so we're going to work our way through this chapter this evening, uh, stopping off in Romans chapter 1 and various other passages tonight. And uh, I believe that it will be a blessing to you. Uh, this evening. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us tonight. Lord, that you would help us. Lord, you've sovereignly planned that we would be alive in this time. Lord, these times which are so bizarre, uh, so strange, as we just see what's happening in our world, we see what's happening in our culture. Who could have imagined the things that we're seeing today. But Lord, none of it is a surprise to you. Not one, not one thing is beyond your, uh, your sight. You know all things. You, you saw these days before you even created the worlds. But Lord, you also, before you created the world, uh, predetermined that we, as individuals, us, that we would be alive in these days and that we would be a part of your church corporately to make a difference in these times that we live. Lord, you haven't called us to be passive. You haven't called us to be observers. You haven't called us to be commentators in the culture, but Lord, you've called us to shape and to mold and to proclaim the gospel that transforms and heals and saves. And so Lord, uh, tonight in this study in 1 Corinthians Lord, that you would help us to see and to hear and to know uh, the things that we ought to be doing each individually in our lives and even ways that we could work together to see your kingdom advance in our world and in our culture. That is what you have called us to and to do. Help us to see it tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, the Corinthians are living in a very pagan culture just like we are. The, the, the world that they lived in, the, the, the city of Corinth, was a very promiscuous city. In fact, a euphemism for a prostitute was a woman of Corinth or a girl from Corinth. That, that's how promiscuous that city was. Corinth in, in its day was Sin City. So when we think of Sin City, we think of Las Vegas, Right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, they say. Well, in Paul's day, it was what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And he had visited this very pagan city full of idolatry, full of perversion, full of promiscuity, 
full of all kinds of debauchery as a missionary. We read that story in Acts chapter 18, and he went into that city, and he preached the gospel, and the Lord saved a a group of people. The Lord brought a group of people from death to life and into salvation, and, and they formed a church, and they formed a community, and they began worshiping together, and Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months. And he disrupted the culture there. He, 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 he was at war with what was happening there in that city because the, the kingdom of God is not to be at peace with paganism, not to be at peace with darkness. As Paul begins to shine the light, there's opposition and there's all kinds of pushback. Nevertheless, he stayed there and he was faithful for 18 months as he planted this church. Now some uh, months later, possibly years later, he hears a report of, of things happening in the church that are not going well, and so he sits down to write them this letter. And in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now what he's talking about here is uh, the exodus. He's talking about how God's people had been set free from the taskmaster in Egypt, how God had brought them out of bondage and had led them through the Red Sea and how that God covered them with his his, his cloud, his, his manifestation of his presence in the wilderness, a cloud of protection and a cloud that led them. And he, he's talking about that how they were, were led out of bondage in Egypt. And he goes on to say in verse uh, 3 that all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In verse 6, he says, These things took place as examples for us, that we may not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Uh, Several things in this passage, and and even as we look further down as we move forward tonight. uh, First, back in verse 1, I just want to draw your attention to something. Paul addresses them. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers all experienced these things. Now, I want you to think about the group of people that are in Corinth. He's primarily writing to a church that is not made up of Jewish people, but of Gentiles. The church in Corinth was primarily a Gentile congregation. The book of Acts, the account there bears this out. The the majority of the Jews did not receive Paul in Corinth. In fact, they persecuted him there. And then the issues that the Corinthian church are facing are not issues that Jewish believers would have had, but rather Gentiles who have been called out of a pagan culture. And so this is a primarily Gentile church, but he says that our fathers experienced these things. What this means is that when we read the Old Testament accounts, when we read about Moses and we read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we're not reading about Jewish history. We're reading about our history. 
This is our history as believers in Christ. These are our fathers. Sometimes we think of it as this is, this is again, the, the Jewish history, but it doesn't involve us as Gentiles. But through Christ, through Christ the Redeemer, through Christ the Messiah, who is the Savior, not only of the Jewish people, but the Savior of the whole world, through Christ, this is our story as well. This is our family history. And that through Christ, you can draw a straight line from Abraham to us. A straight line. It's not that God has one plan for the Jewish people and now he has a different plan for us as Gentiles. No, there is one plan of salvation for both the Jew and the Greek, and that is through Christ. And so when we read these Old Testament stories, these are our ancestors. And in verse 6, it says that they were written, these stories were written for our examples. And so I want to go back and look at the story that he's talking about here. That's found in Exodus chapter 32. That's the second book of the Bible, Exodus 32. Hold your place there in 1 Corinthians 10 because we are coming back. But Exodus 32 tells this story. Again, God had delivered them out of Egypt through his mighty acts, his many miracles. He had set them free. He had shown his power, put his power on display as he reduced Pharaoh and his army and his nation, the most powerful nation on the earth, was left in shambles and in ruin as, as he rebelled against God and God set his people free. He led them through dry ground through the midst of the sea as the Red Sea parted before them. The greatest miracle of the Old Testament is the parting of the Red Sea and the deliverance of God's people. He leads them to Sinai, Mount Sinai, so that God would give them his law. And as Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the law, he delayed there on the mountain. As he communed there with God, verse, 30, verse 1 of chapter 32 of Exodus, he delayed, he, he spent some time. But verse 1 says, when the people, this is God's chosen people that he had set free. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, that was Moses' brother, and said to him, get up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. This is the the story that Paul references to this Gentile community in Corinth. And he says, this was written for our examples and that we should not be like this. This story that it, it, it tells, and we can go back to Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, the story that it tells of a people so quickly departing from their Savior, so quickly departing from their God and turning to idolatry. But notice here the results quickly that happen as they turn to idolatry, that very quickly their idolatry, their worship of a false God leads into paganism and pagan revelry. And I know we have little ears here tonight, but just so that you understand when it says that they sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play, this is talking about 
widespread sexual perversion happening in this community. That this is what happens when you shift your worship from the true and living God and instead shift it to idolatry. He says in verse 6 that these things, ha- things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. That we as God's redeemed people, redeemed now by the blood of Christ, we, verse 7, should not be idolaters as some of them were. As they sat down to eat and, and drink and rose up to play. Paul makes it explicit in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test. Your life, this is the point of this passage that Paul is making, your life will reflect the God that you worship. Your life and the way you live your life will reflect the God that you worship. Here we see that these uh, Israelites had been set free. God was calling them into covenant faithfulness. He was giving them his law. But as they departed from worshiping God and instead began to worship idols, what immediately followed was sexual perversion. Immediately. Your life reflects the God or gods that you worship. This is an inescapable reality because we are created as image bearers. Genesis 1, we are all created to bear the image of God. What this means is that we are like mirrors that reflect the God that we serve. And when we serve the true and the living God, we reflect his nature, we reflect his glory, we reflect his character. But when we worship false gods, when a people worship a false god, they will bear that image as well. All of life, all of life is religious for all people. This is an inescapable reality. All of life is religious for all people because all of life is, is, is a moral choice. We, we, every decision is a moral decision. It's either in line with God's word and submitted to God's commandments or it's rebellion against God. We, we can't escape this. And so every decision is a moral decision. I will either live for God's glory or I will rebel against God. So all of life is religious for all people. Paul says that we should not desire evil as they did and that we should not, as Christians, be idolaters, that that serving Christ and serving idols don't go together. And so you might say, well, if all of life is religious, what about the atheist? What about the person that claims to not believe in anything? Well, they themselves are rejecting the one true and living God, are they not? Is that not in and of itself a religious position? Is that in and of itself? Those who would say, I'm not, an, I'm not religious, I'm a, I'm a secularist. Those who claim that are truly worshiping not God, but themselves as God. That, that's the religion that they're a part of. It's self-worship. So if you look at Genesis chapter 3, when Satan comes and he tempts Adam and Eve, what does he tell them? Don't live under God's rule and God's authority. But instead he says, if you will eat of this tree, you will be like God. You will be like God. You be God. You you don't serve God. Don't follow God. Don't submit to God. No, you be your own God. You make your own rules for yourself. That's the the message of Satan. That's the message of all religion that, that tries to set itself up against the true religion of worshiping God the creator. We see this come to a full expression in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. As God had, dis- had told humanity to disperse and to go into all the world and to 
uh, set up God's, as God's image bearers, God's culture, and, and to cultivate creation into a life-giving, God-honoring world, that instead humanity again at Babel, Genesis 11, chose to not spread out, but said, no, we will make a name for ourselves. Let's not be dispersed. Let's come together and, and glorify ourselves and let us build a tower to heaven. Let us utilize, and you can read about the, their technology that they want to use. They think that technology will be their savior. They, they think that they can be saved and, and, and build a tower to heaven on their own works and efforts. This is the same world we live in today. Humanity that thinks they can save themselves through their technology, through their scientific advancements, through their own efforts and good works, it's a tower, another tower of Babel. Trying to make our way to heaven on our own works, on our own good deeds, not submitting under God and his authority. But, but see this. All of life is lived by faith in some ultimate ideal. So, so the religion of self, secularism, the Tower of Babel, this is faith in us. Faith in our own ingenuity, faith in our own best thinking, that we can save ourselves. There are people who are actively working today to try to create some sort of interface between computers and humanity so that we could download our conscience into computers so that we could gain eternal life, not through submitting to God, but through our own scientific advancements. It is another tower of Babel, but it's faith in some ultimate ideal. That's faith in the, hum the hu fallen humanity. It's self-worship. When Romans 8.29 says that God has called us as his people and that he is calling us and that he is conforming us into the image of Christ, we will reflect one image. We will either reflect the image of Satan himself, the, all, the, the first one who rebelled against God and chose to live under his own authority and rule, or we will live reflecting the image of Christ, the one who submitted himself to the will of the Father. And Paul says that if, if we are living in this way, rebelling against God, that we are idolaters. It is a religion of self-worship. You'll remember this passage from Isaiah chapter 14. We won't take time to turn there. But again, it is the mindset of, of Satan when he said, I will ascend to heaven. I will be above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But Isaiah pronounces this judgment, but you are brought down to the grave to the far reaches of the pit. This is the ideology of Satan, rebellion against God. We have unfortunately been tricked into this ideology through sin and disobedience. And that humanity, fallen humanity, has been deceived by Satan because we believed that we could live our life, our way, in God's world. But we don't live in our world, do we? We live in God's world. We are not our own creator. He is the creator. He is the one who made all things. He is the one who made us as worshiping people. The great deception is that we are autonomous, that we are somehow separated from God, that we live our lives in, in, in a way that... that is outside of his rule and his reign. But the Bible says that from him and to him and through him are all things. Amen. We are not autonomous. 
We are under His rule and reign. Fallen humanity now lives for their own glory, not for God's glory. All of us, the Bible says, are like sheep and we have gone astray and all of us have rebelled against God, declaring to go our own way, that we can live in God's world our way, to not live under God's law, God's rule, God's reign. But through Christ, God is redeeming a people for himself. And Paul says, as God's redeemed people, we ought not live like we used to live. We ought not not be idolaters. In Romans chapter 1, I ask you to turn there. Let's flip back there quickly. I'm I'm coming back to 1 Corinthians 10, but uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verse 18. Again, this is very familiar as we've, we've looked at this passage many, many times. But I, I just want to remind you of these truths because we live in a world that is constantly preaching to us the opposite of this. Verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. What does the Bible say? The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is his handiwork. We see God's glory on display everywhere we look. But in unrighteousness, fallen humanity suppresses that truth, does anything it can to try to drown it out. We can't. It's like, have you ever been to the pool and there's a big beach ball and you try to push it down? Eventually it comes flying to the surface. That's the truth of God that's in our hearts. It is futile to try to suppress it. However, unrighteous man, fallen man, tries its best through, through every means possible, distraction, diversion, sin, to drown, entertainment, a huge one, to drown out the voice of God that is in creation and the truth that he's put in our hearts as his image bearers. We cannot escape it. Verse 20, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, that's the thing, you have to understand this, we all know God. The atheist knows God. They know God because God has revealed himself to them. They say, oh, I don't see any evidence for God. They're lying. They're suppressing the truth. The evidence is everywhere. Now, they may be blinded by their own lies and deception, but their eyes see it. The Bible says they are without excuse, that we all know our creator. We are either living in submission to him through the work of Christ or in rebellion against him. Though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images, that's idolatry, resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts and impurity. Again, what you worship produces something in you about how you will live your life. If you worship idols, you're going to be living a life of sin. And it's going to lead to gross immorality and perversion because when you worship idols God gives us up to the impurity of our hearts verse 24 to the dishonoring of our bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and here's the issue they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen all of us worship 
every human being created in the image of God. We worship all day, every day. We either worship God the creator or we worship something in creation. We either glorify God the creator or we glorify something in creation. We all, all of our lives are directed in worship towards one direction, one of two directions, the creation or the creator. And Paul is writing to these Corinthians and he says, do not worship the creation, worship the creator. We are worshiping creatures. This is inescapable. It's not whether we will worship, it is what we will worship. Not whether, but what. Will we worship God or will we worship the creation? John Calvin, the reformer, put it this way, that the human heart, the fallen human heart, is an idol factory. An idol factory. We produce all kinds of idols. Some we can see with hands, I've, and I've been to places where they literally bow down and literally worship idols. I've been there, I've seen it. It's one of the most heartbreaking things you will ever see in your life. But just because we're more sophisticated in, in our idolatry under the banner of secularism, don't, don't think that it's not idolatry. Human beings are worshiping people because we are created in the image of God. This creature worship that we see today, it is self-centered. It is the worship of self. And so our culture will say things like, this is how our culture lives, that my happiness and comfort is the highest value and good. Is that not the, the spirit of our age? My happiness and comfort is the highest value and good. Therefore, I will do whatever I think will make me happy. Is that not how people live? That is self-worship. That's all that that is. I will live not to please God, but to please myself. I will live not to glorify God, but to glorify myself. It's worship and it's idolatry. And this is the religion of our day. It is the worship of self. Self, and I've, I've, I've gone through this list before. I pulled it up again. We hear all of these things so much in our culture, don't we? Self-actualization, self-fulfillment, self-promotion, self-care, self-love, self-help, self-esteem, self-improvement, self-worth. This obsession with self is the same spirit that was reflected by Satan when he said, I will exalt myself. The obsession with self is demonic, is satanic. And if we're not careful, this religion can evil, even infiltrate Christ's church. And this is what Paul was so concerned about with the Corinthians. This worship of self, this living for self. Now the pagan religion of our day this pagan religion of self, again, it goes under the banner of secularism. Secularism. Secularism is a great lie. It's actually brilliant. It is a brilliant lie. Secularism says that there is, you can create a space where there are no religions allowed. No religious commitments allowed. And that we, as, as image bearers of God, that we can create a space and that we can say, we can enter into this space and we can check all of our religions at the door and we can exist in harmony and peace under this great banner of secularism. We can all get along because religion divides people and so if we'll just leave those out here when we enter into the public sphere, we enter into a secular sphere that has no religion at all. But the great lie, the great deception of secularism is that secularism itself is a religion. Secularism itself is a cult because it exists with ultimate, uh, it, it exists with a faith in an ultimate ideal. That's religion. Faith in an ultimate ideal. 
It is a religion in and of itself. And so if we buy into that lie, guess what we are participating in? Idolatry. If we believe this lie of secularism, and again, what does secularism says? It says, we don't need God. We don't need to submit to God. We don't need to submit to his word. And that we can, as a secular people, we can save ourselves through our science and through our medicine. And I, look, I'm, I'm, I love science. Science is from God. But if I worship science instead of the creator, if I worship the creation instead of the creator, I'm an idolater. Did, did we not see over the last three years people who worshiped at the altar of science? Science says this, science says this. How about this? I believe the science. The problem with science, which is wonderful, by the way, the problem with science is that it's always changing, right? Isn't that by definition what science is? I formulate a hypothesis. I test the hypothesis. Does my hypothesis bear out? If it is, well, maybe I can repeat it. If it doesn't bear out, then it needs to change. My hypothesis needs to change. To say I believe in science is to set up the creation in the place of the creator. It is a religion. When we are called to worship the creator, we will not save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. So I am all for science. I am all for medicine. I thank God for those things. But they are not our savior. They are not our God. So this religion of secularism, we need to see it what it is. It is another tower of Babel. A group of people united in rebellion against God. And we must not participate in this. The biggest problem with secularism, hear this. The biggest problem with secularism is not that it deceives unbelievers, though that is a problem. The biggest problem is that it deceives believers. That believers have bought into the lie that we can create a neutral, secular space and that we can live our private Christian lives over here, but then when we enter into the public sphere, we must check our allegiance to Christ at the door. That itself is a religious idea. And what we have found, have we not, under this experiment of letting the religion of our culture be not the true religion of Christianity, but rather secularism, the worship not of the true and living God, the creator, but the worship of the creation. Have we not found that there really is only one thing excluded from that space? Have we not found that secularism does it not invite anything and everything into that space except the name of Christ? It's a trick. It's a deception. And too many Christians have bought into this idea. This week, I had lunch with a, a friend of mine, a pastor, who is beginning to see what I'm talking about here. He, he said, I, I, I've just been so committed to the idea that, that we live in a pluralistic society, and, and yes, we believe in Christ, and yes, we believe in the gospel, but, but not everybody does, and, and we have to surrender, we, we have to... to uh, check our faith at the door in certain spheres so that we can all just get along, that we live in a pluralistic society. Listen, pluralism is just a rebrand of polytheism, many gods. As a Christian, I cannot commit to an idea of many gods because there's one true and living God. But just because, see, this is the great deception. They, they just rebrand and, and, and do a really good marketing campaign. And Christians go, well, okay, I guess you're right. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what got them fed to lions in the first century. They said, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. They said, you might have, you, and, and, and did they not live in a pluralistic society? They did. 
They lived in a society that said, look, just do your own thing. Have your own faith. You want to worship that God? Go ahead. You want to worship that God? You want to go ahead? You want to worship that God? Go ahead. All you have to do is pay ultimate allegiance to Caesar. Just go in and offer the offering, the pinch of incense, and declare that Caesar is Lord. You do that. You can worship any God you want. And Christians were the first ones who said, we can't do that. Because Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we live in a day that is trying again to make the state God, Caesar, Lord. And too many Christians just don't see it for what it is, that it itself, statism, secularism, is a religion. And Paul says that we cannot practice this. We cannot mix with idolaters. That we can ourselves not be idolaters. There is no neutral ground. A place is either living in submission to Christ as king, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, or it is living in rebellion against him. An individual is either submitted to Christ as king, as Jesus as Lord, or, is, or that individual is living in rebellion against God. A family is either submitted to Christ as king and Jesus as Lord, or they're living in rebellion against God, their creator. A family, a church, is either submitted to Jesus as king and Christ as Lord, or they're living in rebellion against their creator. A community, a city, a state, a nation, is either submitted to Jesus as Lord, or they are living in rebellion against God. Jesus said it so clearly. He said, if you are not for me, you are against me. And so anything that is not pro-Christ, Jesus is Lord, is living in rebellion against God. Individual, family, church, and even the state. Because all authority belongs to the one who rose on that third day. All authority belongs to the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father and rules and reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. The problem with secularism, as we look at it today, is that they are better at evangelism and discipleship than we, the church, are. They are more devoted to their faith and religion than many Christians are. They are more devoted to their religious convictions, their ultimate convictions, than we as Christians are. They are more, more devoted to, to capturing the hearts and the minds of children and to training them and to indoctrinating them in this thinking and worldview. And we as Christians, we don't even see it. We have to wake up it's time for the blinders to come off. We are the ones who have the truth. We are the ones who have the truth. We cannot let idolaters train our children. We cannot let pagans indoctrinate our children with their values. That's through media, amen? That's through social media, that's through movies, and it's everywhere. The, 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 the flag of, of, you know, secularism is the rainbow flag. It's a religious cult. It's like when, when I wear a cross, it's similar. When I wear a cross, I'm saying that I am aligned to Christ. He is my Savior and Lord. But there are people today who are just as, are, are, are committed to the, this agenda, this worldview, this religion, this cult even more so than many Christians today. Represented by this rainbow flag. It's a religious statement. We need to recognize it for what it is. Verse nine, wrapping this up tonight, verse nine. Paul says, First uh, Corinthians 10, we must not put Christ to the test. How would we put Christ to the test? 
Well, by claiming to be part of God's covenant family, by claiming to follow Christ, but serving idols, engaging in idolatry, not serving Christ, not following Christ, following the idols of the culture, submitting to the idols of the culture, bowing to the cultural norms, rather than bowing the knee to Christ. We are now part of the new covenant this new covenant with a new people, with, with, with better promises. And we must not, Paul is saying, we must not do like they did back then. We have these examples of what take place when people break covenant with God and go off and serve idols. But in verse 20, I want to look at verse 20 and 21. He begins to talk about sacrifice, food offered to idols. He says, do I imply that pagans, what they sacrifice, that they offer to... No, he says. Well, let's look at verse... We're going to have to look at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You see, there are many people today who want to compromise with the culture and say that they are serving Christ. There is no compromise between light and darkness. There is no compromise between the one true religion of the worship of the one true and living creator God brought into grace by faith in the sacrifice of his son and the worship of the creation, worship of idolatry. It is either demon worship or it is Christ worship. Paul says, wake up. Don't participate with demons. He's, he, that's, what's the big deal? You know, it's just a little bit of compromise here with the culture. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. There, there is an ultimate allegiance that we will all pay. We will either serve the Lord or we will serve and bow to the culture. And so in verse 31, he concludes it this way. So whether you eat or whether you drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is how we are to live. How do I know if I'm captured by idolatrous thinking? Well, are you living for the glory of God? That's the great test. That's the great way to examine our lives. That's the great way to see is what I'm about to do, am I doing it as unto the glory of God? Am I doing it to glorify him? Am I doing it to serve him? Paul says, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. You see, we will either live for ourselves and our own enjoyment, our own comfort, our own happiness, or we will live for the glory of God, to please God, to serve God. We cannot drink from both cups. Do not be deceived. This is the great issue of Paul and his teaching on worship, that, that who and what we worship will determine the course of our lives and the way that we live our lives. And if we worship the true and the living God, that we will live for his glory and his glory alone. And if we're living for our glory, we're not worshiping God. We're ultimately worshiping ourselves that we've set up as idols. Amen? I invite you to stand with me uh, this evening as we close. Father, we do not want to participate in works of unrighteousness. But the enemy is so subtle. He is so good at lying. And just as those Israelites had been set free from Egypt through mighty acts of redemption, great salvation put on display, they so quickly became impatient and turned to idolatry.
You wrote that for us as an example to, to show us. Lord, the, the great temptation, and as Paul wrote in the first century to this first generation of Christians living in a pluralistic, pagan, polytheistic society is that they could compromise with the culture instead of worshiping you. And, and you inspired him to write these words to show us clearly that when we live in a pagan culture that we have a decision to make. We will either serve Christ, we will either serve you as Lord, or we will bow the knee to self-worship, creature worship, culture worship. Lord, if there's any place in our hearts where we are bending the knee to that idol, God, I pray through the power of your spirit that you would convict us, that you would open up our eyes, that you would help us to walk in faithfulness and obedience Lord, as you have called us out from the world to be a holy people as unto you. Lord, help us to see that there can be no compromise between light and darkness, between good and evil. There is no fellowship between these things. And Lord, that you would help us to be those lights scattered throughout the city, scattered throughout our families that will not participate in lies and deceit, but will speak the truth and speak it in love because the gospel, the truth of the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Lord, I pray that you would put that conviction in our hearts that the gospel truly is the power of God unto salvation and that when it is preached and when it is shared that those who are in darkness will see a great light, that those who are in bondage to sin will be set free of sin. Lord, let us be confident in you and in your power to save as we shine your light, the truth. Send us out, Lord, as missionaries this week. Help us to not live lives of compromise, thinking that we can partake in both cups but help us to live lives solely and completely devoted for you, living for your glory and your glory alone. That you would be exalted in our lives and in our families and in our church and in our community. Help us to see the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.